When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and to the heads of the families and said, let us help you build, because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of the heads of the families of Israel answered, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. They bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. We'll now jump ahead to chapter 5, verses 1 to 2. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Iddo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Josadak, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. And the last reading is from chapter 6, verses 13 to 18. Then, because of the decree of King Darius had sent, Tatanai, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and Shethar Bozani and their associates carried it out with diligence. So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, a descendant of Iddo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, and the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. For the dedication of this house of God, they offered 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 male lambs, and, as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, one for each of the tribes of Israel. And they installed the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their groups for the service of God at Jerusalem, according to what is written in the book of Moses. Um, doing the reading in three parts like that, you can get your head around the, the three chapters. So it starts with opposition to building the temple, then the prophets are there encouraging, and then they finish and they offer the sacrifices and so on. That's, we're looking across those three chapters. But as you think about this passage, um, think about what it means to live as a Christian. If you say that I'm a Christian, if you stand up and let people know that you are a Christian, then you can expect that you'll be misunderstood. You can expect that you'll be misrepresented. You can expect that you'll be given a hard time. Um, friends at school stir you up because you say that you're a Christian, but maybe you didn't quite live like one. Uh, your parents even, or your family might make life hard for you because you say that you're a Christian and they might say something like, oh, it's just a phase they're going through. When you say that you're a Christian, you can expect that you will be misunderstood and you will have opposition. There'll be stories in the media that portray Christians as living in the past, just not keeping up with the times. They'll portray um, Christian marriage or the way you do church as just ancient and just not the way we should be doing things these days. Attention will be drawn to the worst examples of people who profess to be Christians. 
who've done terrible things. Well, that'll be smeared across the rest of us as Christians. When you speak up for Christian values, you'll be shouted down. You can expect that to happen. And there's that constant pressure just to, to conform, not to stand out as being different, to be silent. What I'm saying is if you set out to live by the word of God, then you should expect opposition. Why? Well, because it's always been that way since the Garden of Eden. Because when God is building his kingdom, when God is working to his plan of seeing his people in his place under his rule, Satan will work against that and always has and will be until Jesus returns. So until Jesus returns, we can expect to be on the receiving end of Satan's schemes. And you'll see that in everyday life and the opposition that you face as a Christian. Pressure to, to stop building the kingdom of God. Pressure to stop doing that building work of God's temple, his people. That battle is just part of living in this world. And so when we looked at Ephesians, I know it was a few weeks ago, but when we looked at Ephesians, we finished on chapter 6, and Tom took us through these verses where in Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is writing to these Christians and saying, be prepared for this battle that's on. So in verse 10 of chapter 6, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Here in Ezra chapter 4, we see an example of the devil's schemes. Satan opposing the building of God's temple, opposing God's people who are trying to live according to God's word. In Ezra's day, that meant that they were opposed to, uh, he was opposed to seeing the temple built. But as we look at this, there's lessons for us to learn as well. Our circumstances are different, but Satan is still at work in the everyday. Um, through challenging circumstances you might be faced with, maybe through sickness that you're battling, through kids that are hard to get on with or parents that are hard to get on with, all these things and this opposition that we face can cause us to take our focus off the goal. So we battle on to live according to God's word. If you glance back at Ephesians, so it goes, put on the full armour of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And it goes on, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There's that encouragement to stand firm in the gospel of Jesus. And to do that, you need to be trusting in God's word. And as you do that, yeah, there's opposition you face in the everyday. You scratch the surface and you see it's the devil's schemes trying to lead us away from living for God. And Paul goes on, um, therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which is your, with, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. And on he goes. There's your New Testament perspective through which to look at this Old Testament passage, seeing the devil at work, distracting God's people from living according to God's word. As we understand the details of Ezra chapter 4 to 6, you start to understand the way 
that we need to stand firm and the way that we can be tempted away from that. Satan will do anything he can to distract us, to take us off, our eyes off the goal of building Christ's church. Um, brief reminder of where we're up to as we look at Ezra. Ezra, it's in the back of, uh, well, it's not in the back of, it's in the middle of the Bible, in our English Bible, but it's in the end of the Old Testament times, which is a little bit confusing. Um, but this is after um, David and Solomon. You'll remember when we looked at one and two kings last year. David and Solomon were like a high point for the people of Israel. They were in the land, they conquered their enemies, they built the temple in Jerusalem. And then after Solomon, the kingdom divides into two, 10 tribes in the north, two in the south. In the north, rather than let people go down to the temple in Jerusalem to worship, they set up golden calves. So you didn't have to cross the border into the south. Because the people were rebelling against God, he sent his prophets, prophets who don't tell the future, but they speak God's word. And the people failed to listen. And so God sent the Assyrians in from the north to obliterate the people and scatter them around among the nations. They stopped short of conquering Jerusalem and the south. And so God sent his prophets to the people in the south, calling them back to him, and they failed to listen. And so in comes Babylon and takes the people into exile. It's after a generation of being in exile that you pick up the story in Ezra. Um, Ezra begins with um, God doing two miracles in chapters one and two. Um, God working two miracles, one in the heart of Cyrus, the ruler of the Persians, moving Cyrus in such a way that he determined that he would have the temple in Jerusalem rebuilt. And the second miracle in verse 5 of chapter 1, God working in the hearts of his people, um, causing them, the people of Judah and Benjamin, uh, some of them at least, to want to go home back to Jerusalem and start rebuilding the temple. And so in chapters 1 and 2, you see God's unfailing faithfulness to his promises and you see his supreme sovereignty over everything. And then we, we moved to chapter, a bit slow with my slides today. Then we moved to chapter two, uh, three rather, and we saw in chapter three the people on a good day, living according to the word of God, doing what they should do, living for God. And then we discover in the chapters we're looking at today, in chapters four to six, that day didn't last that long. They start wandering away again, off to other things. So here in chapter four, what you're seeing is the people of Israel um, Benjamin and Judah, as they try to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, they're facing opposition from those around. So have a look at how it begins in chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the families and said, let us help you because like you, we seek your God and have been sacrificing to him since the time of Esharadon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. That sounds like a genuine offer to help, doesn't it? Genuine offer to help get this temple built. But 4 verse 1 introduces it by saying these are the enemies of Judah and Benjamin. So when you hear something that sounds too good to be true from people who aren't your friends, be sceptical. They claim that they seek Israel's God, and that's only half the truth. They also chase after other gods as well. This is the kind of way which Satan will work, won't he? Offers that sound like they're too good to refuse. Massaging the truth till it becomes a lie. Making compromise sound like a positive thing to do. But this time, the leaders of Judah and Benjamin, they're not tricked. 
they politely and, and swiftly decline. So if you look partway through verse three, their response is, you have no part with us in building a temple to our God. We alone will build it for the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, commanded us. Zerubbabel and Joshua and the other leaders, they point out, actually, it's their job to build the temple to their God. And the last bit of the verse there underlines it. It says, the king of Cyrus, the king of Persia, who rules over you as well, told us to do it. It's like, this is none of your business. But you look at that and you think, actually, it's, it's a fairly polite answer, but it's clear. You can't argue against it. And as you look at that and think, yeah, we too will have tempting offers put before us as Christians, won't we? Tempting offers. We may be asked um, to strike a compromise so that maybe we can pool our resources. Uh, perhaps we'll be asked to refrain, refrain from proselytizing so that then you can receive government funding. Or maybe you'll be offered a promotion if you agree that you will work every Sunday. Or maybe, I don't know, you fill the gap. All sorts of opportunities which they look really good. But you realise actually, no, it's one of Satan's schemes to draw us away from God. When Satan attempts to draw us away like that, we can learn from Joshua and Zerubbabel a quick, truthful answer. It's usually the best answer. Rather than mulling on it and stirring it around, a quick answer, a quick no is usually the best no and an uncompromising no. And so Ezra chapter 4, verse 3, the direct attack on the Jewish leaders, that has failed. Verse 4, I reckon Satan then directs his schemes at the rest of the people. Um, the nations around, they begin to undermine and discourage the builders. So if you look at verse 4, then the peoples around them set out to discourage the people of Judah and make them afraid to go on building. Verse 5, they bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans. On the surface, again, it looks like kind of human behaviour here, but scratch below the surface, and I reckon, yeah, there's Satan at work. Smooth talking to leaders, verse 3, that fails, so undermining the builders in verse 4, tempting the officials in verse 5, Satan at work opposing God's building plans. At this point in Ezra, um, whether it's Ezra writing this, he comes on the scene in the next chapter, in chapter 7, that's next week, whether it's him writing or someone else, at this point in Ezra, what the author does is they kind of, they step back and they look across these years and show that this pattern of opposition, it will continue. So verse five says, they bribed officials to work against them and frustrate their plans during the entire reign of Cyrus, king of Persia, and down to the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So if you look at, um, I think I've got it on the screen behind me, that table of the, um, the, the rulers of Persia. You can see he's saying this, this pattern continues on into the next king's reign. And then it goes even further. Opposition to the building plans continues into the, the next king's reign as well. Um, sorry, if you jump now to the end of, of the chapter, so verse 24, you'll read there, thus the work in the house of the Lord in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So verse 5 this temptation, this, this drawing the people away, this bribing the leaders and so on, stops the building of the temple until the second year of King Darius. Haggai arrives, Haggai the prophet. You'll see him in chapter 5. When you open Haggai, you'll read there, Haggai was around in the second year of King Darius. See the link? Opposition to the building 
has had its impact. Things kind of go on hold until the second year of Darius when Haggai needs to call the people back to God, back to their work on the temple. But here in chapter 4, what we're being shown is this opposition to the building of the temple. Go back to 4 verse 6. I know we're jumping around because there's a funny thing that happens in verse 7. In verse 6, it goes, at the beginning of the reign of Xerxes, they lodged an accusation against the people of Judah and Jerusalem. See how they're still talking about the opposition against the building of the temple, except it's taking it now into the next king's reign. And then if you look down in verse 7, um, and in the days of Artaxerxes, this goes on and on and on. You look in the table, you can see Xerxes was the king that Esther married. Remember that? We looked at Esther in church a few weeks ago. This is giving you the, the time frame. This, the, the author here is saying, as God inspires them, saying this opposition continues on through the reigns of all these kings of Persia. This opposition, opposition is ongoing through Darius, Xerxes, Artaxerxes. Um, so far, here in Ezra chapter 4, all I've shown you is just an introduction or an overview to this opposition to God's building plans. What happens next is the, the tricky bit. Verse 7 does this leap ahead into the time of Artaxerxes and tells about the opposition in his reign. We're given this, this time warp into the future to see this opposition to the building of the temple. Why is it inserted here? Well, my guess is that the way this is written is so that we can understand the way that Satan opposes God's building plans. This is a perfect example of how he does it. So let's have a look at how it works and get a feel for it. Verse 8. Rehum, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. And then we insert the letter Artaxerxes. So these two men and those around them are writing a letter to the king of Persia against the Israelites in Jerusalem who are rebuilding. And as you look at their letter, it shows you the way that Satan manipulates these circumstances. The first thing you'll notice is... Um, Ram and Shimshai claim they have wide support. Sound familiar when people are speaking against you? Everyone's behind us in this. Have a look at it. Verse 9, Ram, the commanding officer, and Shimshai, the secretary, together with the rest of the associates, the judges, the officials, administrators over the people of Persia, Aruk, and Babylon, the Elamites of Susa, and the other peoples whom the, uh, people whom the great and honourable Ashurbabai deported and settled in the city of Samaria and elsewhere in the trans-Euphrates. It's like saying everyone is with us in this. And you've got to think, are they? Really? I mean, this is the kind of trick that kids do, isn't it? They come home and they say, can I have a mobile phone now? Everyone's got one. And a diligent parent will say, who has one? Oh, so-and-so. It's that kind of manipulation of the truth that's happening here. Um, At the last church we were at, one of the elders took me aside and said, need to talk to you about this. There's a lot of us that are concerned. Who? But it makes it sound like it's, you get the gist. This is the kind of way that the truth gets twisted. You read on. The next accusation is this questionable accusation there in verse 12. The king should know that the people who came up to us from you have gone to Jerusalem and are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. How do you know it's a rebellious and wicked city? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. It's pretty flat at the moment. So they claim this wide support. They make these questionable accusations. Then they kind of defy logic. So in verse 13, furthermore, the king should know that if this city is built and its walls are restored, 
no more taxes, tribute or duty will be paid and eventually the royal revenues will suffer. What's the connection between building the walls and no taxes being? Maybe, but not necessarily. And then I'm told that behind the scenes, Artaxerxes has inherited from Xerxes a kingdom that is, well, not, it's strapped for cash because Xerxes has been fighting wars around the boundaries of their territory and churned up all the money. And so, yes, he's, these people are writing to, the, to Artaxerxes pressing a sore point, a sore button. They claim the moral high ground next time, verse 14. Now, since we are under obligation to the palace and it is not proper for us to see the king dishonoured, we are sending this message to inform the king. Just, yeah. Sneaky, sneaky. Um, next, they have selective history. So in verse 15, um, so that a search may be made in the archives um, of your predecessors in these records, you will find that this city is a rebellious city troublesome to kings and provinces, a place with a long history of sedition. That is why this city was destroyed. Just remember, this is after Esther, Mordecai. So this is kind of like selective, selective history saying, look in your archives, you'll find this, this, and this. But what about the good that Israel have done? What about the fact that the king's father was married to one of these people? No mention of Mordecai, no mention of Esther. You look across this and it's, I think it's included here because it gives you an example of the form or the shape the opposition will come. It's a case of um, opposition to God's building plans. And in this instance, if you look down in verse 17, Artaxerxes found what he was pointed to in the historical records and issued a decree to stop work. But it's talking about the work of building the walls around the city which we actually come to in Nehemiah, which is what makes this a little bit of a tricky part of the Bible. Why is it included here? Well, I think it's included here so you get a feel for the type of opposition that you can expect if you are attempting to live by God's word. So chapter four shows the type of opposition we are up against, the degree to which Satan will go to in his schemes. Verse 24 pulls us back to the day of, of Darius. Um, thus the work of, on the house of the Lord, uh, house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Um, then what happens is in chapter 5, we're given an example or we're shown how God counters the opposition. And the way that he counters the opposition is to speak his word into this situation to send his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah. So in 5 verses 1 to 2, God sends Haggai and Zechariah, um, both of which we've looked at at church about this time last year. Andrew Brown took us to, into Haggai. Um, and I can't remember when it was we looked at Zechariah. But 5 verse 1 goes, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Edo, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, who was over there. If you... This is where our ordering of that books in the Bible is a little bit tricky. Um, Genesis through to Esther is kind of like chronologically ordered. And then you have all the wisdom literature in the middle, and then you have the prophets in the same sort of chronological order. So these prophets are at the end of the Old Testament. But if you were to read Haggai and Zechariah, you'll get a feel for what's happening. In Haggai, for example, um, the people have started saying, it's not time to build the temple now. And Haggai has to say, stop handling your houses and get back to building the house of God. In the end, um, the building of the temple does recommence. 
and so we pick it up in verse 2, 5 verse 2, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and jo- jo- Joshua, son of Josedach, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them, helping them, continuing to be there, to keep speaking God's word into the situation, keep pushing the people back to God. So chapter 4, what we're seeing is um, opposition to the God's building plans. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, show us God's counter and sends his prophets to speak. And the rest of chapter 5 and into chapter 6, I reckon what you see there is God's sovereignty. Um, God turns the tables and the building of the temple is finished. Look at um, verse 3. Let me show you a couple of bits here. Verse 3, 5 verse 3. Time, Tatanai, governor of the trans and Shetab, Ozanai, and their associates went to them and asked, who has authorised you to build this temple and to finish it? They also asked, what are the names of those who are concerned to build it? Here's more opposition, another wave of opposition, but this time we're shown God's sovereign hand in this. It says in verse 5, but the eye of their God was watching over the elders of the Jews, and they would not stop until a report could go to Darius and his written reply had been received. And so we have a record of what was written to Darius, and we have a record of the reply. And this time, when Darius consults the historical records, he finds the decree of Cyrus to rebuild the temple. Um, and so look at how the chapter ends, 6 verse 22. For seven days, they celebrated with joy the festival of unleavened bread, because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God, of Israel. There's God at work again, another miracle, this time working in the heart of Darius, the king of Persia, so that he was supportive of the rebuilding In fact, made others funded in the environment. But what you're seeing is God's sovereign here, achieving his purposes, turning the tables. Um, and then look back at verse 15, because of the 14 and 15. 14 goes, so the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the descendant of Edo. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Darius and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. This nice summary of the way that God has his hand over this whole situation, sovereignly, supremely sovereignly controlling everything. We've kind of done sort of a skip through three chapters of Ezra, but I started it by getting us to think about it from with our Ephesians glasses on because our New Testament perspective lets us see that this is Satan's opposition to people living by God's word and God's solution is to have his word preached clearly and, the, and to show his sovereignty yet again. And so as we work at building God's temple, we're not building a temple in Jerusalem, we're building God's church. Um, God's temple is within us, where he dwells by his spirit. That's where the real work is, is taking place. But Satan is going to be opposed to God's building plans now as he was then, and so we can expect opposition. We'll experience all sorts of everyday opposition. Satan will try to get our focus off the job at hand, and it might be through, it could be through sickness, the challenges of sickness, you don't have to beat your sickness. You just have to keep trusting in God. Keep your eyes on that. Keep your focus on that. It might be through having kids who are a challenge, who make difficult decisions or make your life hard for you. It's 
life is not about being the perfect parent. You want to be living for God and pleasing him and praying that your kids will as well. Um, you could be faced with all sorts of pressures in the workplace or for job security or whatever it might be. Really, that's going to be a distraction from faithfully serving our, our great God. Keep your eyes on that. Don't be distracted from it. So as we work at building God's temple, his church, as we work at building God's temple in our hearts, we want to keep living by the word of God. Um, when we're faced with opposition to living for God, we need to remember that God does speak through his word. As we listen to God's word, we're given the strength to persevere, to stand firm. So when you look at Ephesians 6, the sword of the spirit is the word of God. The weapon of choice of the spirit is God's word in your heart. Um, if we're equipped by God's word, then we will be able to resist the lies of Satan. We will be able to see the truth clearly. We will be able to give the quick no and the firm no. As we keep our heads in God's word, then we'll be continue to be reminded, as you see here in Ezra, that God is sovereign, that God is unfailingly faithful, and that his desire is to have his people living by his word. And as a church, we can work at helping each other stay focused on Jesus. Let's pray that we would. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the way that you work. Um, thank you for the way that you've given your word to us in the Bible, that you've seen to it that it's translated in English that we can read and understand. But most importantly, Father, we thank you for the way that you work in us, in our hearts, as we hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would be continuing to do that. Lord, please forgive us when we lose sight of you. And please forgive us when we are distracted by things around us. Please forgive us when we allow Satan to deceive us like that. We pray that we would be, as a group of Christians, living to please you, living by your word. And Lord, we pray for each one of us that you'd help us day by day. In Jesus' name, amen.